Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Eric Life. <laughs> Uh, my name is Eric, and I'm a compulsive overeater. You know, it, uh, it's so interesting, and it's happening uh, even as I speak. Every time I'm asked to speak in front of a group of, I think, more than five people, I get really choked up in this program. Uh, because this is, you know, for those of us in recovery and those of you here for the first time, there's an amazing miracles waiting to happen here. Uh, so, uh, this is always a long share, and so uh, uh, I was driving over here today thinking I've heard myself pitch so much that, uh, you know, I wish I could share somebody else's life just once. Uh, uh, but uh, I think it might be helpful to give some background, and I, and I hope tonight not to speak or not to spend a lot of time on what it was like. But, but I was a compulsive overeater. I come from a family, uh, uh, certainly on my father's side, that's, that's filled with alcoholism back many generations. And uh, alcoholism, thanks to legislation today, is an addiction that you really can't acquire until you're much older. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, I find that I turned to food very early because I wanted to get my addiction going just as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, I, uh, I seem to uh, uh, love to live in, you know, uh, uh, guilt, shame, and, and uh, passive aggressiveness. And, uh, you know, it, uh, I think back sometimes, and I just cannot remember a day when I was happy, joyous, and free as a kid, you know. And but the weird th- memory I have is a, a, a childhood of not really starting to compulsively overeat until I was about seven or eight years old. Uh, I've shared in, in in other pitches that uh, I was a latchkey child, and that was back in an era when it really wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, my mom taught, my father worked, and we walked to and from school. And uh, I was home alone for about two hours every day uh, with Mike Douglas and a loaf of bread. Uh, you know. And my early venture into chemistry was various combinations of cinnamon and butter and bread. And, and I once thought I could open a restaurant and I can think of at least ten types to put on the menu. Uh, and, you know, and that's just the way it, the way it is. You know, uh, as I said, the, the, that was a time when things were, were a little different. Uh, uh, I've shared before that, you know, I, my parents let us play on the roof, let us to do anything we wanted because they were both raised in the country and, and they felt that, you know, if for some reason we were stupid and we're going to kill ourselves, better it happened young before <laughs> they put a lot of money in us. Uh, so... I uh, uh, started compulsive overeating at an early age, and uh, uh, as I said, I uh, at eight years old, I, I doubled my weight and became a compulsive overeater and got my card for this program. Uh, and <clears throat> I can't think of a time in my life after that when it hasn't been raging. Uh, I shared before, there were certain high holidays for me. The first was Halloween. Uh, and the second was that period between Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know. Uh, and then that period between Christmas and the next Thanksgiving. Uh, 
So, uh, and that was probably the best holiday of all. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, I've had certain times in my life where I've been very lucky to have my disease go into remission. And, and the first time, you know, uh, I love when we read the big book, you know, uh, if you pay attention to Bill's story, he goes through all of the phases that I think all of us go through as compulsive overeaters. You know, beginning with the realization that I'm just a compulsive overeater and I think I'll stop eating. You know, that's all it takes is a little bit of willpower. And, and when I was about 11, uh, I went through a growth spurt and I managed to realize I got a scale and I realized if I didn't go up and wait, I would go, you know, I would grow out of uh, my pot belly. And, uh, and so I did, you know, and, and uh, I survived at that until I was about 18 and then I started going up again. Uh, I married early at, uh, to a woman who was an alcoholic, which was, uh, ex- you know, very convenient because then we, we had something we could do together. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Lived with her for, for uh, as we were married for many, many years. Uh, I think I've shared this before, too. We were uh, married for ten years and happy for four, and we stayed together another six just to spite each other uh, <laughs> because divorce was too good a gift to give the other person. Uh, and, and that's where my disease raged. And so let me get to my first bout of recovery. Uh, <clears throat> and the twilight of my, dis- uh, of my marriage... Uh, I got recovery in this program. And, and I was so grateful, and it really was some very good recovery. And in fact, probably the move that caused my wife to divorce me was my recovery in the 12-step programs because she couldn't uh, stand the thought of me being in a program like this. Uh, it made her feel bad when she drank. Uh, and, and I got recovery in this program, and I was so grateful. And, and, you know, I came in the program about the same weight as I've, I've always acquired. I was about 245. I got in this program. I got abstinent. I'm a sugar addict. Uh, uh, and that is really my primary addiction. And I totally understand what the big book says about uh, an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. When I eat just the tiniest amount of sugar, that obsession begins, and and I'm raging. And so I got off my addiction, and I got in this program, and I got recovery. And that was about 20 years ago uh, when I came in program, and that happened. Uh, what I'd like to share is is a common theme for me, and that is my uh, amazing ability to be dishonest with myself my whole life. Uh, I got that recovery and actually was in program for about four to six years with really good recovery. But, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned today is the, the, the greatest miracle in this program is the 12th step and that the key to remaining abstinent and succeeding long-term in this program is my ability to turn around and work with others. And that first time I got abstinent, uh, I really just enjoyed the trajectory of abstinence and recovery uh, out into the stratosphere. And the problem was gravity eventually pulled me back down to earth. I actually don't remember when I lost my abstinence that time, but I just woke up one day and I realized I was back you know, head first in my disease. <clears throat> and again, uh, a sugar addict and, and raging. Uh, and that went on for uh, a few years after that. And uh, uh, I then proceeded to venture into programs away from OA. I spent a couple of years in CA Howe uh, and uh, uh, drove across town to go to that. I uh, felt, you know, uh, another thing I like to share is that, you know, in OA, one of the traditions is all we need to do to be a part of this group is to say we're a compulsive overeater. 
And I experienced that in my own failure to, to succeed long-term in this program. When I left, I was consumed with the notion that I couldn't come back here. And so I drove across town to attend another program. And I stayed in that program a while. Now, uh, <clears throat> my issues with dishonesty are self-honesty more than anything else. I just lie to myself something awful. And I can't, you know, that's another thing. I just cannot think of a time when I was ever even honest with myself. And uh, so every time I broke the program, it invariably started with me lying to myself. That, oh, I can have a little extra of this, you know. And, and that's not recreational sugar. You know, that's, that's purposeful sugar. I don't know, you know. <laughs> you know, so I can have that. It's the recreational sugar, you know. I love that term, and we're the only people uh, in this room that, you know, you can say recreational sugar outside these doors, and people will go, huh, what? Yeah. But we know. And, and, and I lost my abstinence and went out. And uh, this went on for about four years, where I just kept venturing out to ever further meetings, in program, <laughs> momentary recovery, out. Uh, and and uh, uh, this went on and on. Uh, around 99 or 2000, I came in program for one of my, my best stretches uh, after my first abstinence. And I started attending meetings again, and I had a good sponsor. And uh, he had me work in the steps. And uh, as I said, I got through the steps and uh, uh, worked with him for several months. And almost in no time at all, I was lying to myself and lying to him. You know, part of the reason, I, I don't know if any of you call in your food each day, but, you know, one of the most important things I need to do is be honest with what's going in my mouth and make sure whatever food I put in my mouth, I share with somebody else. And what I do, especially when I get dishonest with myself, is begin modifying that food, you know, uh, attaching a snack to a meal, you know, so that then that makes sense. Or when I call it in, I split it up. Or, you know, uh, I, I've shared a hundred times before that I quite literally used to call in oatmeal cookies as oatmeal and raisins. You know? <laughs> because, you know... The sugar and butter is only a binder. I'm really eating oatmeal and raisins. That, you know, uh, called in an entire pizza as one piece of pizza, uh, sliced up in eight little individual slices. Uh, you know, and and these are the things I did. And with that sponsor, uh, I remember when I was coming up on my first year. Uh, of abstinence, he would wanted, you know, he was so anxious, I think, really, to give me a candle, and that was when I finally admitted to him, you know, I've just been dishonest to you, I'm ashamed, you know, and so forth and so on. And shame is something that I really love, and whenever I can, you know, get some shame going with myself, you know, I love it. I mean, that's one of the problems I feel, you know, in, in, in our disease, is what I really want to do is feel ashamed or hide a secret from you. Uh, and that gives me something and a tool to use in my disease. Uh, I always like to read Chapter 5 because what actually happened at that point was I just became frustrated with myself and, and with my efforts in the program. And, you know, in Chapter 5, how it works, it says, Rarely have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to the simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And I left the program at that time. This was about 2005. 
because uh, as part of my shame, I come to realize that that very likely could be me. You know, uh, those of you again that have significant recovery in this program, I think you understand the power and importance of honesty. I could not achieve that, and I just began to feel that what was the point, you know, if I couldn't do that. And, of course, I left this program and just raged, was totally into binging and got my weight back up and, you know, uh, could rationalize this size pants, the next size pants, you know, everything else. And, and I left program. And, again, uh, 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 a really fortunate thing in the end happened to me. Uh, uh, several years ago, and, and I have to pause just to say that as a latchkey child, uh, I raised my sister growing up. I was about 10 years older than her, and so while my mom worked, I was the one who had to get her up, you know, change diaper, get her to the sitter, be home to pick her up, and so on and so on. So I felt very close to her, almost like having my own daughter. Uh, <clears throat> several years ago, uh, she was making a cell phone call and had a head-on collision and died. Uh, and the sad part is, and I only ever, and I, I, I always say this, I only ever share that is so that it won't be such an urban myth. You can see somebody who lost somebody making a cell phone call. And the person I always feel sorry for is a woman she was calling, didn't admit it right away, but she finally called about two weeks after she passed and said, you know, I just have to tell you I was on the phone with her when it happened. Uh, anyways, that devastated me. Uh, uh, I can remember, you know, with my brother, literally, uh, you know, they, I think you say it in the Bible, I was literally pounding my chest saying, I don't know if I can go on. Uh, and, uh, but we have to go on. And, and so what happened was I began to feel that the only way I could make somehow this event right in my life was to get abstinent and get right with my higher power and get this program going. And what proceeded to happen was 300 days of an entire year where I woke up every day and eventually said, I'll start tomorrow. Uh, I made a point at that time, you know, having made that oath, uh, she passed away in November, and having made that oath, I decided January 1 would be the target date, and until then, all bets were off. You know, <laughs> and, and, and January 1st came, and my mom had been staying with me, and that, you know, always irritates any kind of binge uh, work. <laughs> and uh, so I had to move the date out a little bit, you know, because those were by dates. You know, uh, she was here for two weeks, so January 14. Yeah. And 14 comes, and I did so well by noon that, my God, you know, let's celebrate tomorrow. We're, we're going to go take it right up to 1 o'clock. You know, and and this goes on. And, you know, uh, again, what comes back to this is the beauty of the shame it enabled me. You know, every day I could fail. Every day I could feel a little bit worse about myself. Uh, and this went on and on and on <clears throat> for 300 days. And here I am thinking I'm going to be constitutionally incapable of being honest with myself, and I'm living that, that experience. By God's grace and the grace of my higher power, uh, on October 12th of 2011, uh, I went crazy in the front yard of my house. Uh, my neighbors had some people over, and they had been over all week. I had gone crazy. I, you know, and, and I just proceeded to tear into these people so long and so hard, I could not stop 
I mean, my father was a rageaholic, and I, you know, I was channeling him, and I understood what it was. And these people kept trying to calm me down and calm me down, and it would not happen. And through this process, at some point, you know, I just began to look at them and think that they were going to call the paddy wagon for me, or certainly call the police because I was really coming after them, you know. Uh, and and. I told them to, to please just step away. I said, I'm going to go into my house. You're not going to see me the rest of today. I'm really, you know, I, I, I caught myself in my act. And I came in my house and I sit down that day uh, and really came to confront myself and this honesty. And I realized that I had a very important decision to make that moment in my life. And that was to figure out a way to get honest with myself or accept the fact that I was, you know, had failed myself, failed my sister, failed everything, you know, and let's just take the first ticket out. Uh, <clears throat> and thank God, you know, <clears throat> the miracle of this program is I had a spiritual experience in that moment and realized I had to come back to this program and I had to rely on the 12 traditions where I just, you know, I had to come back and just own my seat as a compulsive overeater. And I still remember that day, too, which just, just before, you know, the, the OA decision, I called my doctor and I said, you know, you have to give me a drug. I'm going crazy, you know, uh, and it didn't happen. And I realized that uh, I'd have to come back to the meetings. And I'm so sorry. Hold on. Um, so uh, I got up the next day. I went to the 7.30 meeting. I live up in the valley. Uh, I went to every meeting I could get to that day. And I had had my heart set on meeting a particular person who I was going to ask to be my sponsor at the 100-pounder meeting. And I like to share this also because it, was, it wound up being very important to me. Uh, I got to that meeting that night, and that person was busy. I never got to ask them to share or, or to be my sponsor. But I heard someone share that night uh, something that has still resonated with me to this day. And he said that, you know, whether you've got 20 years of absence, five, we've got a couple of one-year absence here today, we've got a 90-day absence here. Even if you've been in the program one day, you're one day ahead of the newcomer who's walked in at zero today. And the least you can do is turn around and shake their hand. You may not know the program like somebody who's gone through all the steps and has a lot of time, but you have a shared experience, and you can turn around and shake their hand. And it made me think, because, you know, we're in the disease of isolation. To me, sometimes the eating is just an action that occurs in my disease. My real point is to live in isolation, you know. <clears throat> Get in my house, pull the curtains, be alone, binge watch some sort of program. God bless binge watching. <coughs> uh, <coughs> you know, uh, and, and I took that information away that day. I called my boss. I got permission to go to work a half hour later that year. And for the entire first year of program, I used to go to a meeting every morning at 7.30 and stand in front of the door and shake the hand of everyone who walked inside. And I still try to do that today when I come to meetings, uh, to stand in front of the door and shake the hands because it's so contrary to what I want to do as a person. But it's so meaningful to me in program. You know, I, I mentioned before that I get choked up every time I'm asked to speak in front of a large group. But I get choked up because you guys give me so much recovery just by being here. 
just by hearing me, you know, hopefully I say something funny so it's not just, a, you know, a long and boring and omnipresent <laughs> uh, pitch. But, you know, it, this program just, just means a lot. And so I started shaking people's hand. And, the, and the, the, to finish the story, I, I went to this Sunday meeting in the Valley. And I pitched, I had not pitched at a meeting at that point, and I pitched this pitch of desperation, you know. Uh, there's an old Twilight Zone episode, I'll remember, where the angel of death comes to get this child, and some salesman gets him not to come, uh, and, and the upshot of it is he has to pitch to this guy so that he won't come and take the child. And, and you know, and I pitched that day, just, just my desperation, my need to be honest, this, 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 and this. And it was such a crazy pitch that this guy walked up to me after the meeting and he said, do me a favor, get in your car, go to this restaurant and don't do anything till we come to get you. You're crazy, man. You know. <laughs> and God bless him. They got in their car. They came to get me. And we had breakfast that day. And to this day, I try to meet and have breakfast with those fellows every Sunday uh, because they taught me what sober eating is. They helped me work the steps. And they helped me understand what it means to be honest with myself and with another person. And, and that's the real miracle today. Uh, I would finish with this, and, I, and I, it looks like I might finish a little early. Uh, uh, that uh, amongst the things I've learned in program is, is the honesty that I just shared with you. That's the miracle I have to work on every day when I wake up. And one of the things that I try to do is... Uh, sustain a morning ritual of some sort. I don't know if people have ever talked about that, but every morning when I get up, I read a couple of pages from the big book, or I read something from today, or I do something like that, and then I say two prayers. One is the third step prayer, or the gratitude uh, 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 serenity prayer, and one is a prayer that I made up uh, of my own choosing to help me set my abstinence right. And those rituals help help serve a purpose to me to help me kind of stay focused on this program. The other thing I try to do is make outreach calls. Uh, you know, of all the things that I've discovered when you uh, have the nerve to pick up the phone and call somebody is it gets me out of me. You know, uh, when I talk to you and I find out what your problem is, I don't think about my problem. And that's the great miracle of an outreach call. And when people call me, I get to hear their problem. And, you know, and usually, thank God, people call me when I'm soaking up my problems. And to get to hear their problem takes me out of my problem for a little while, too. Uh, so uh, that's what happened, what it's like. And, and uh, uh, if I've said anything of value, great. I'm not a spokesman for the program. And thanks for letting me share. Yes, question. Oh, is it disturbing to start to feel good about myself? Well, that's the thing I'm focusing on now, you know. And so rather than feel shame, I just feel the disturbance of feeling good about myself. And so, uh, you, know, you know, but no, no, honestly, you know, the great thing about shame is if you share your life, your food, you know, your honesty with another person, there's not a lot of room for shame unless the people you're sharing with say, hey, let's all feel shamed about that. You know, uh, <clears throat> the more I had a, uh, a friend who once said, you know, that, that the addict usually has two personalities, their addictive personality and the personality they share with somebody else. And the shame that I tend to feel is about that addictive personality. And so the more that I can bring those two together, share with my sponsor, another human being, the more I can feel good about myself and... Uh, I don't know quite how to explain 
that 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 element, but but uh, what I want to say, it's not so much disturbing, but but it is there, and I do know it. But but it's a good thing, and it replaces the shame. And if you can reach that point, and I think again, uh, the the steps of this program offer that promise around the sixth and ninth step. Uh, that we can cease to feel that sort of shame and feel a little good about ourselves. Sure. Uh, sharing the, the phrase about sober eating. Uh, what sober eating is, is, is defining my eating in such a way that I no longer have to live in the gray. You know, uh, there are certain foods that I avoid uh, because they are problem foods for me. I don't eat refined sugar uh, to the greatest extent that I can avoid it. That certainly includes recreational sugar. I prefer to just think of it as refined sugar because it exists in so many products today. Uh, I also don't eat white flour. And then beyond that, I put parameters around my meals, either uh, a measurable quantity or uh, uh, a guide that had been given to me before is, is one plate of food. And I have these big serving plates. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, but one plate of food, something to put a boundary. Because uh, uh, what that group has taught me, at least as, as far as sober eating goes, and maybe this, this will answer, is, is to, to get that gray out so that I can exist black and white and I don't have to wonder, uh, you know, uh, if I'm so, if I'm abstinent or not, does that make sense? Sure. How is my relationship with my ex-wife? It's extremely good because I never see her. <laughs> my uh, <coughs> my ex-wife, uh, you know, she did divorce me, and she and she left me. Uh, <laughs> She, she really did just leave me, you know. Uh, and so, uh, but, but you are asking, how did I make things right with her? And especially with my ex-wife, I, I'll share this, that, that I had a sponsor at, when I, right after I got divorced that was a phenomenally wonderful woman. Her name was Elaine. She moved to Santa Barbara years ago, but she used to always, you know, say, I'm Elaine, I'm a compulsive overeater, I know it, and God, please don't ever let me forget it. I've never forgot the way she opened herself. But she was from, like, New Jersey, and she had this great accent. I used to love when she would, like, yell at me. And so when I did, you know, and, and so when I did my fourth step at the time, you know, there was a lot of stuff I needed to share and make amends to for my ex-wife. And, and uh, uh, I was calling her a lot anyways because of the divorce. And when I shared all these terrible things, you know, and, and how do I make amends, she was like, don't talk to that woman. She's horrible. You're done with her. You know, and so, so I basically made a living amends. And, and by avoiding her as much as I can, that's probably the best way I can ever serve her. You know? Yeah. And I've done that. So. Right. Any other questions? Sure. How has my relationship with my higher power evolved since my sister's passing? You know, um, uh, I'm not an atheist or an agnostic. I have a very well-defined knowledge of God, uh, and and uh, I feel very close to that person and and, uh, and and that that sense. One of the things that that I've also learned in this program is 
is my contact with my higher power is extremely good too. Another way that I relate to the three, the first three steps of this program, admitted I was powerless over food, my life had become unmanageable, came to believe in a power greater than myself, and then became willing to turn my will and my life over to a power greater than myself. I do that to my higher power every day and my morning rituals. But another thing I've realized in this program, you know, part of the action I had to make to end my overeating was to realize that my mind is crazy and it wants me to compulsively overeat. And for me, step one is about realizing that I can no longer listen to what my mind tells me about food. Now, what that also requires is a second step, which means there is somebody, be it higher power or people in program, uh, that can help me make that decision, frankly. Uh, And I use it with with the fellows I know in program and so forth. And the third step, you know, becoming willing to turn that over, is to recognize I talk about my food with other people. I let other people in on that decision because my brain totally has the wrong idea. You know, it is all about that serving plate, you know. And so I need somebody to say, you know, I think a little smaller plate might be in order here. You know, because because my mind is, is, is as I said, it's just waiting for me, you know, waiting to create an opening where it can get me compulsively overeating again. So I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, but I do have a very close sense of my higher power. And, it, and, and, and uh, I would share this, that it includes my sister, and that's the best part. So thanks. So has the compulsion been removed or do I still struggle with it? You know, um, uh, amongst the promises in the big book is that compulsion should be removed, but it's contingent upon me working the steps. When it comes back, and I'm not saying, you know, it, it is gone. On my best days, it's gone. Uh, and when it comes back, I know that there's work for me to do in program. And so what I do try to do is make sure my sponsor is on top of that and helping me work it. But, you know, I, that's something that, that uh, is talked about in the Ninth Step Promises, you know, that, that we're, going, we're going to be relieved of that compulsion. And that's another thing that I've learned, you know, as far as the 12th step goes and as far as getting out there and meeting people. We have newcomers tonight. I hope that I can meet some of them after the meeting. And those things, you know, as you say, anytime I can get out of me, I'm out of the food. And that's the best thing of all. Yeah, over the years, are there particular things that trigger it? Sugar and any, and any sort will trigger it. Oh, emotions? Well, shame, you know. I love that emotion. That's just, you know. Uh, shame will trigger it. Uh, any sort of, you know, anger and resentment. I mean, uh, uh, again, you know, in our program, anger and resentment are two things that I have... Uh, no right to be a part of. And so those are triggers. And, uh, and anyways, with that, let's uh, have no resentments and angers. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for letting me share.